0: Uh, welcome to the Masters of Automation podcast episode. Today, we have Jonathan O'Reilly with us. Jonathan, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thanks. It's great to be here, Al.
0: So Jonathan is co-founder and COO at Accio. Accio is a low-code AI application platform. Before Accio, uh Jonathan worked at Sony as an engineer, and then that led his path to be a product manager at Sonos where he's seen the startup in early days as well as the scale. And then later he joined uh, Mark Forge where he became a product leader and led marketing. And Mark Forge is a 3D printing company uh, for both industrial goods um, as well as 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 well as beyond. So now he is running the startup called Accio um, with um, also my uh previous class, high school classmate, Akin, um, and then got started there as the CEO right now. Um, so it's a pleasure to have you today and and I have the opportunity to hear your story. And you have a very diverse background. You were engineer, you were in product, you were now in operations, you led marketing, you've seen startups grow and scale, as well as you worked at large companies um, like Sony. And now you guys are kicking off your own startup and uh, which you, you already I think locked series A as well. So how, how how is what is your story like? Like what led you to Sony and then later to Mark Forge? Like where, where did it all start?
1: Yeah, um, well I you know I, I guess it kind of goes back to uh, to undergraduate. And uh, I, I grew up in Montana, um, interestingly, and uh, my, my father was a professor of marketing at uh, Montana State University in, in uh, Bozeman. Um, and, uh, you know, I was kind of disenfranchised with the education system, uh, in high school. Uh, I, I didn't really, uh, didn't really think it was teaching me much. Uh, and I decided, uh, in my head, uh, as a rebellious teenager that I was not going to go to school. I, you know, I didn't want to go to universities, you know, like I could tell it would be the same thing that was happening in high school. Um, but, uh, you know, my dad, uh, he, uh, He told me I couldn't leave the house until I applied to a couple of schools and then he even picked out a couple of schools for me to apply to, um, one of which uh, was actually uh, Gonzaga University where I ended up going. Um, And uh, at the time in high school, the one thing that was really interesting to me was speech and debate. I was on the policy debate team and we were ranked number one in the state of Montana. So we were pretty good. We went to nationals. Um, And uh, Gonzaga had a debate program. And so I got into that school despite not trying very hard in in high school and uh, I was gonna do pre-law originally. and, uh, you know, I, I get into the pre-law classes, and, and they're really, like, much too easy, and it's, you know, kind of the same story. Um, I, I decided to go to Gonzaga because I realized that college was going to be a party, you know. I'm like, this is going to be great. I can just have fun for four years. Uh, and, and once I had that realization, I'm like, I'm definitely going to school. But so I got into the pre-law classes, and they were, they were you know – not engaging and so fortunately um, I was taking some of the advanced math classes and physics classes because I'd been in some AP classes in high school and that turned into electrical engineering um, and uh, and so how did I end up at Sony well one day um, in my senior year I sat down uh, on Monster.com back in the day, and I applied to every electrical engineering job in California. Um, and uh, I, you know, I wrote up my uh, my application and my cover page to to say what I wanted to do, which was design um, work. And uh, you know, a couple of companies got back to me, and and when I reviewed the ones that got back to me, it looked like I'd written my application specifically to their job. Um, but that was just that was just about the fit. I really just used the shotgun approach, um, and so. I got hired and moved to uh, San Diego to start doing uh, design engineering on video processing uh, circuitry for CRT televisions uh, back in the day at Sony. Um, And I did that for, you know, seven years. um, And uh, it was really exciting, like uh, lots of learning. um, But eventually it kind of got a little bit slow. It's like each year you're going to do the same thing over and over again, uh, you know, like um, design the next TV, and they ship a new model of TV every year. Um, and uh, sooner or later, you get a little bit bored. Um, but I'm working uh, at the time with a lot of product managers who are making the decisions about the features of the television, and I had a lot of questions about how those decisions were being made as an engineer. And you know, I think this is a very, uh, very traditional engineer product manager like uh, interaction where you know, product management asks for some feature and and engineering is like, uh, that that feature doesn't make sense for one reason or another. Um, And product management is like, do it anyways. And so, you know, as an engineer, you're like, okay. And you do it. And then, you know, later they like reverse, uh, you know, I I have a good anecdote. Like uh, there, there was a time where they asked us to put in this extra audio processing chip um and it would push the bill of materials over the uh the limit uh you know that the bill of materials could be at by about three dollars and we're like if we put this chip in the bill of materials is going to be three dollars over uh and they're like do it and i was like oh okay so we put it in and and then you know the the next uh roll up um from the from the factory comes back and it's three dollars over and they could they come down and they're like uh you know, we got to take three dollars out of the bill of materials. I'm like, really? really? <laughs> um, it's like, you got any ideas? I'm like, well, there's this audio chip, um, yeah. <laughs> and, and sure enough, I was like, take it back out. Uh, and, so, and so, anyways, one of the one of the product managers who's actually pretty good that I was working with. Um, you know he he took a new role and uh, they asked him who he thought could replace him and he actually suggested that I might make an interesting candidate because I was always questioning their decisions and trying to understand the logic behind it uh, and so um, I moved into product management my first product management role at Sony uh, and uh, and I spent about a year and a half working on stuff there and and you know it's actually really beneficial to be able to take your engineering knowledge of um, the technology space, and then uh, meet that with uh, market understanding of opportunity and value propositions. And I, I found that like incredibly fascinating because you know you, you not only had to like think of what would be good to do and why it would be good to do it, but make sure that it was actually possible to do within the constrained decision making environment. Right. So um, that that actually like um, that part of it ended up being like really exciting for me. Uh, the part that I liked a little bit less was. Sony is a really big company and it's hard to have a really big impact as a, as a young person coming up at a, at a really big company. I mean, you can, but, but you're, you're kind of always injected in these like HR systems that are designed to like govern your growth slowly and stuff like that. Um, but, but anyways, like uh So I'm working in product management and and this guy, Phil Abram, who is the head of uh, like uh, North America marketing for Sony TV, um, ended up leaving and uh, taking a job at Sonos back when they were very small and uh, they were hiring product managers and he suggested that I apply. And uh, I met the team there. Um, I would never really heard of Sonos before. I was like, uh, I don't know what the small company is. Like um, I'm working at the number one, at the time Sony was number one in television. I'm like at the number one television company here. Uh, but then then I met the team um, and uh, everyone I met was, uh, you know, some of the, the smartest people that i that I met. And so I made the decision then like, I'm gonna work with these people i'm gonna learn from them uh you know it's a startup may not work out but uh but I'll have an opportunity to learn uh quite a bit uh and as it turns out, it did work out uh and you know like uh in in the working out uh grew my responsibility and career and ended up leading product management on a bunch of the products uh that they built um many of them still shipping in some iteration uh today um and watched it grow from you know i think it was something like you know, 60, 70 million in revenue when I joined to almost a billion in revenue when I left. Uh, you know, so, seen so like the full a,
0: scale up. You've seen the full yeah, scale pretty, up story.
1: Pretty big scale up opportunity there. And, um, and and you know, like, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because like you hit these like on, on the way up uh, when you're growing, you always hit these like stall points, I think, uh, and I've seen this happen like multiple times now where, um, you know, you, you have an idea and you bring it forward and, and maybe that's a new product category or a new uh, feature that you bring to market. And it, you know, grows really fast for a while but once you lap that growth, like uh, you're back to growing slowly again and, and you need something else to like keep growing, right? Like uh, there's there's this constant like uh, hunger for growth. If, if you're not growing, you're dying. Um, but, you know, it was just a really fun run and, Um, Towards the end of it, uh, you know, when it was really big, uh, you know, I I really missed those early startup days where it was like, your life is on the line if you don't make the right decisions, like things are going to go poorly, Uh, you know, it's just like very motivating to like wake up every day and, and realize that, you know, like, you you might not survive the company might not make it. Um, And, and like the responsibility for uh for getting it across the finish line for for like keeping it alive like is is on you and you know for me at least uh that that ends up being like super motivating because because I you know just want to like make it work and do whatever it takes um and so uh I actually had my uh my second child, my daughter um and on paternity leave, I spent some time thinking and I'm like, you know I think I'd like to jump into an earlier stage startup and and you know that led me to mark forge a uh, totally different industry but um, you know, I asked a product manager I'd worked with uh, at Sonos um, the uh, who he thought in the Boston area was uh, interesting for me to speak with and he made an introduction to Greg Mark, who is the CEO of Mark Forged, and I met the team there, uh, Abe and Ekin and everybody uh, actually people uh, that are uh, co-founders in hackia today. <laughs> um, and uh, and it was the same uh, same basic experience I had um, when I first joined Sonos, which is, um, you know, I thought this is a group of really, really smart people that I could learn a lot from, um, and, and. Early on at Mark uh, I asked, you know, before I took the role of leading product there to uh, speak to some of the customers. And it was clear they had like emerging product market fit. Like, uh, you know, they, it, it, the 3D printing, they 3D print, um, you know, continuous strands of uh, carbon fiber uh, wound inside of nylon matrices. Um, and the, these, uh, these parts replace like tooling and fixtures on manufacturing lines. This is a, sort of core value proposition at the time um of, cu- of course they print lots of things now um mm-hmm. and uh and you know the the people who were like uh, maintaining these manufacturing lines were paying like 10 times as much for machined aluminum and it was taking 10 times as long to get those parts in uh so, so it's like a like an order of magnitude improvement in their workflows and and they just loved the printer so there, there was something really like already there at its core. Um, and, you know, we, we built it uh, and launched new printers and, and scaled the company up. Um, and, uh, and it, you know, it was, it was a wild fun ride, like just as stressful and, uh, and exciting as, as I imagined it would be. Um, and, uh, you know, t- towards the end, um, you know, I ended up taking on some more responsibility in marketing uh, when we had some issues with sort of our lead pipeline uh, and, and deal flow. Um, and, and I realized, you know, like the, the thing my dad taught at, uh, Montana state university was marketing. And, and so like, I'm an engineer, right. I'm, I'm never going to be in marketing. And, and so here I find myself like <laughs> actually running marketing. I'm like, I, I'm not so sure I want to do this. Like, you know, this is like, uh, um, but, but, uh, but it turns out actually, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the optimization in a B2B marketing workflow is around data pipelines and efficiency and doing like some math on figuring out like where your best dollar spent to like closed one deal sits and how to like invest against the market of like opportunities of advertising to maximize your qualified lead funnel. Um, And, you know, there, there was there's always these like tricky incentive structures between marketing and sales. Uh, In in this case, like um, marketing was incentivized to make marketing qualified leads. Uh, You know, I think, I think that's pretty typical. Um, But the definition of those leads uh, had been established a long time ago. And it's just kind of apparent that if, if you could, you know, use machine learning to match the firmographics and the title and the behaviors that a lead that came into the system had taken to your, already closed one or closed lost business um, that would be a much more effective way of deciding who to reach out to first um, you know how to engage how aggressively to engage it basically make the entire pipeline run more efficiently so you know the, this founding story of Accio, is we started looking for solutions on the market that would let us do things like that that would let us create smart uh, robotic process automation workflows based on like natural language input from users who filled a form. Um, and we couldn't really find anything that let us build it. Uh, there, there were some solutions we tried on the market that had somebody else build it for us. Um, they didn't work very well. And we realized that, you know, and they were also application specific. And, and one of the problems is application specific solutions tend to be least common denominator solutions. Um, you know, the people, the, an application specific ML solution kind of has a right to live because you're an expert in the application, not, not necessarily an expert in ML. Um, and, and there's always this, between the business group and, and the person delivering a machine learning model of understanding, like what the objectives are and what the data actually says, and you know this this even exists internal to companies. So um, that the spark of the idea there was, it would be really nice if there was a platform that allowed people to um, take take an arbitrary data table um, for any application you might have, uh, and you know model model the outcome of interest, uh, understand the patterns that are driving that outcome. And then you know, in a couple of clicks, use it for real-time decision making. And, and that idea is the sort of core idea of Accio. And you know, of course, we've built lots of stuff since since that sort of original idea. Um, but but the uh, the main thesis was that ease of use and enablement would make it so that uh, a lot of people who today um, do sort of traditional data analysis in Excel uh, or you know you know. Tableau or, or uh, Power BI um, would be able to do uh, would be able to leverage machine learning and in, in their uh, in their processes and, and extract more value from their data faster and and uh, and that would be like meaningfully impactful for a, a ton of businesses. So um, as, assuming that uh, any data driven process in any business will eventually run on machine learning, uh, the market's incredibly massive, and uh, that's that's what we've been up to is building Accio. So we. Uh, we founded it and um raised a friends and family round and then uh, seed round from Bain Capital and uh you know made some progress on the A round. We haven't haven't announced anything yet, but uh <laughs> made some progress there too.
0: Yeah, that's a very impressive story. And I think throughout your journey, you've seen how a company can not only scale but can maintain the the culture that it has. And I think over time that is one of the um tough parts to maintain, right? Like as culture is uh, really thing.
1: hard. Um, particularly if you're scaling. I mean, if if you some of these, some of the times in 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 scaling you double your headcount um in in like one year. And if you think about that, like a uh, half the people in the company um came in from other cultures. And you know, the other half the people there, maybe you know, half of them have only been there for a year by the time this influx happens. Um it it takes a lot of considered thought. Um, you know, I, I think the leadership of uh, Sonos did it quite well. We worked on it really hard at Markforge too. Um, you know, we it, and it it stretches from like onboarding and orientation to like setting examples and leading through examples, like uh, like every every time you can. Um, and uh, and we we spend a lot of time thinking about that at Accio too. Uh, you know, making sure that we're building a the the right type of culture um, and and you know that. The things we focus on, for what it's worth, are you know really we want a culture of ownership. I, I think um, I think your most successful companies and the the only way that you can really effectively scale is if you can empower people to have agency. Um, you know this this concept of of hiring agents uh, I, I talk about uh, a lot because um, you know hiring someone who will just do what they're told, uh, and, and execute, um, and, and do that fast and efficiently that that's good. Um, but, but it's not sufficient, right? Like, uh, having someone who will think through the problem space, uh, take ownership, be able to make decisions or come back and say, you know, this is how we should solve this problem. Um, and, and why, and defend that point of view that that's, that's what you're looking for, I think. And, 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 and sometimes, like culture gets very political and it gets very hierarchical, and you have like, uh, I can't, you know, talk to the person who's my manager's manager with an idea because my manager would get upset that I, you know, skip leveled them or something or went over their heads. Um, you know, like, uh, I, I, frequently say, um, if, if I ever hear that happening with anyone reporting in my infrastructure, whoever was in the middle, doesn't need to be there anymore and they can just go, right. Like, uh, um, because, uh, because I think like, um, the only way you get that agency is like uh, collective ownership, shared incentive st- structure with stock, and then, um, really, really empowering people to, to make decisions, uh, and, and take ownership. Um, but, but again, like very difficult to do. And and it it actually gets harder in my experience when companies get bigger, um, and growth slows down uh, because then the stock component of the compensation becomes less impactful, uh, and when everyone's fighting over some salary dollars, uh, it you know kind of quickly becomes a little bit of a like like a political game to try and like get the promotion to SVP or something, and and like that's your win condition, uh, you know like um yeah there's this idea i think and, and we talked about it uh mark forged of like two dreams in china it's like the the dream of your personal success and then the dream of the uh the, the country success <laughs> i think i think it's like actually pretty similar at a at, at a business and uh, you you want you want both dreams to be alive and well uh if your culture is going to be tight
0: yeah definitely and, and i think there's the the, the transparency and the visibility of the goals of the team and the company and the individual when they align well, and top of the, the motivation that there will be more success later on if you continue to accomplish more, um, I think becomes a very sweet spot in those deals that, um, which is very interesting because I I think all, there, there are a lot of companies who struggle to scale uh, maybe after you reach one thousand people, then it's it's no longer a small friends family, and then I think group to community, then to become a country at that point. Right? So like, you the, know,
1: I, I think in my experience, the tipping point's been around 300 people, three hundred people. Uh like like two hundred to three hundred people somewhere in there it tips over. Um, you know, we'll we'll see if we get that big at Accio. Um, which which uh, I hope we do. Um. We'll see how we how we can hold that off uh, and uh, and still like um hopefully have a, a culture of agency.
0: Yeah, yeah. I am i am sure you guys will accomplish that. I think the the well one of the interesting aspects was you've seen the how Sony was, how Sonos was, how Mark Forged was, and seeing both as an engineer's perspective, a product manager's perspective, as a marketer's perspective, um, I think there are a lot of lessons learned um, for Akio that maybe the company could have done better in the past, or maybe they could have strategized certain things better. So what, what are some things um, that that you learned over time that when you guys were starting Akio, you all sat together and you're like, okay, this is the number, three things that we are doing for sure.
1: (laughs) I, you know, I don't know that we were that explicit. Um, the, uh, I mean, I mean, obviously we were going to build a really great product experience. Um, you know, like, like really what I think, um, I think the trick is, is to be really clear with your strategy and your, and your decision-making frameworks, um, and, and to set those up early because, um, you know, like uh, people need like like the way that a company operates, and its sort of thesis on like uh, the market opportunity is is built on some like some principal thoughts or like uh, some constructed like frameworks. Uh, and when someone comes new into a company, they don't know, and they certainly haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what the like frameworks for decision making are, um, and and so practically the only way to get everybody rowing in the same direction as things scale is to be really clear and explicit around, here is how we prioritize like the product roadmap, for example, um, here's the priority framework and here is the strategy. And, and a good strategy um, is, is like an umbrella. Uh, you know, it's like um, they're, there's things that are inside of the umbrella that are on strategy. And then it excludes a bunch of things you could do um, that would be off strategy. So, so for example, like at, at the beginning, and, and by the way, strategies change and can be refreshed, you know, uh, periodically. But, but at the beginning at, at Sonos, for example, um, you know, it was, it was uh, fill everyone's home with music. Uh, we were very focused on the home. So, uh, you know, nobody came in and, and would suggest some out of out of home experience for audio that we would focus on, like concerts or I, I don't know what else, like uh, you know, there's a long list of like audio experiences you have outside of your home and probably lots of op- interesting opportunities for a sound company to go invest in those areas. Um, but uh, you know, it was sort of sort of like a focusing lever, so to speak. Um, and, and I think just like uh, getting getting those sort of like, here's what we do, here's what we don't. And why uh, things detailed out, and then and then telling them to everybody, and then telling them to everybody pretty frequently, and summarizing you know each each bit of it as you know as, as in as pithy a manner as you possibly can, um, you know, like uh, so that everyone um, can sort of hear it, uh, remember it, and then sort of remember what unpacks underneath it, because you know no one's going to remember three paragraphs describing like what a strategy actually means, but but they'll remember like the name of the strategy and then that'll like parse into like, oh yeah, this is like why we're doing what we're doing. Um, so, so like st- strategy and decision-making frameworks I think are, are uh, incredibly necessary. And they're also like very aligning because, you know as you make them, uh, everyone either has to agree or disagree. And if, if you're not on the same page, then you got to dig deeper and find like where your like fundamental assumptions differ, right? Because because like if you if you share a set of fundamental assumptions, you should be able to construct like a, a shared view of what to do. Um, and so so almost always there's some like there's some fundamental assumption difference, uh, and and it's good to get that dragged out into the light and look at it from multiple directions. Um, and and I think you always also have to have room for for debate. Right. Like uh, you know, you have you have to be open to being wrong. Uh, you know, you can't be right all the time. Um, and uh when you're wrong, you know, be the first person to stand up and admit it is, uh, is my other tip. <laughs> um you know it you know, acknowledge that you're wrong before anyone else points it out. That's uh, yeah. that's a career accelerator <laughs> for you.
0: That's a very good point. There's the um in, in the in Kim Scott's book, uh, radical candor, there's a <clears throat> there's a meeting structure that she introduced at Google and Apple. And then she says that when you're in um, two opposing directions and then there's an argument to be made, the first meeting is like each party uh, protect their own idea and then try to make an argument to win, uh, wh- whatever it may be, whether that's about like product strategy or maybe a new feature edition or maybe competitive intelligence to blend into a new market. And then the next meeting, she's saying, okay, everyone now reverses the role. And now you need to defend his idea or her idea and vice versa. And then she's she's saying that like she finds that experience really interesting because then you have to study why why
1: the other person thinks differently. Um you know, you know what's really interesting is like if we go all the way back like to policy debate when I was in high school, that's what you do like um you you are either affirmative or negative and you have to take either side of the topic each time you debate um and and so like i it, i think it i you know like out of all like uh high school sports i might recommend to someone i think that would sort of be at the top of my list if, if you would call it a sport it's a, maybe a mental sport um but uh but you know it, it it sort of forces that exact thing which is you you have to think through a problem from both sides of view um and uh and then you know you have to like Understand all of the arguments really well, and then you can like come to a conclusion of what you think is right and and defend it uh, and 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 be passionate about your direction because you know it's uh, you know the important thing is you've sort of divorced your sort of personal worth and and being right from the from the direction and and you're like really trying to just objectively look at the issue as best you can right like uh, and and you know I find like. If and, and this is hard for anyone. This is hard for me. Like, uh, you know, like if you think you're right about something, uh, you, you kind of don't want to hear opposing evidence. You know, it's like, uh, it's like, um, I, yeah. I, I think that's like a little bit of human nature, honestly. Uh, and and so you, you actually have to work at like being open to opposing evidence and thinking it through and then, you know, deciding like, oh yeah, like uh, that convinced me or, uh, or yeah, I see that point, but you know, here's why I don't think it's right.
0: It's uh, I think we are biased by what we but what we know by uh by nature, right like because we defend that mm. idea and, and and so it's very interesting because then it, that is a, a fundamental reason and why an innovation can happen because then if both parties started to um, debate on a topic and then they argue whether it may be, and then that leads to new. Uh, technologies to be born. We look at different perspectives. And uh, and, uh, I would like to tie the discussion to the event at Harvard, uh, which was really nice, uh, which is a really cool event. And it it was very interesting because um, at at the event the main thing was low-code AI. We discussed about a bit of open AI uh, products generative technologies in addition to RPA. and what I found very interesting was how the ideas of students, the tech leaders, the professors, and maybe mid-tier uh, like product managers slash engineers currently at Google and whatnot, um, talk differently. So like, as, as, as uh, you gave a speech there as well. So like, as, as you were speaking, what were some of the things that, um, that you told like while describing Arceo, the local AI. Um...
1: Well, you know, I, I think um, actually, I think the most interesting part of that uh, that presentation was the Q and A session at the end where we talked about like ethics and like responsibility in, in machine learning. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, t- to your point, everybody like, approaches a uh, problem or solution space from their frame of reference. It's really all you have um, is your frame of reference. Um, And so uh, if you wanna like learn, you're gonna need to get exposure to people with different frames of reference, right? Um, And uh, and you have to be kind of open to that but it doesn't mean that everyone's point of view makes a ton of sense or that they've really thought things through, um, but it is good to get exposure to like really smart people's differing frames of reference because then you'll learn, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I I, I think like um, one of the reasons I like product management and, and like uh, really love like working in product management is because you almost inherently have to like have a like position that works for everyone in the business, right? Like uh, what you're trying to accomplish has to make sense to the sales team, Uh, has to make sense to marketing, has to make sense to engineering about building it, It has to make sense to the investors, Um, you know, like, like, you know, customer support has to believe that like, it's going to be a good experience like uh, and that, and that it's like a meaningful value add, Uh, you know, like you have to like, you kind of have to work through all of those reference frames uh, in order to like have a good position on what to do. Um, and and I think like the difference between good and bad product management really boils down to your ability to really explain to everybody like why, right? Like, and, and not everyone's always going to agree with you. I mean, there, there's been... You know, uh, there's always like an engineer who thinks you're wrong. Uh, Like, like regardless, I could just guarantee that that's always going to be the case. There'll always be a really smart engineer who thinks you're a complete idiot. Um, And uh, and the challenge is going to be, you know, explaining or convincing them, um, you know, like uh, like to look at it from a slightly different reference frame than they're operating in. Um, And uh, and you know, being able to do that, uh, being able to like tell the story um, and explain why. And, and, you know, it does help to have some technical background. So, you know, your asks are um, anchored in reality of possible implementation. Uh, that, that's kind of the trick to a good product manager. And, you know, like uh, I've been on the other side as an engineer getting asked, you know, terrible, dumb things uh, that don't make any sense. Some of them even implementable, but I just didn't believe the market. You know, like um, I, we can build this thing and it would take a lot of time and effort. I, I just really don't buy that this thing is going to sell. So it feels like I'm going to do a bunch of work for no reason. And that, you know, that as an engineer, you hate that, right? Um, and so, so like, you know, sometimes it's like, hey, look, like, here's a way we can approach this problem that makes it tractable. But sometimes it's like, here's why this market is set up for this product to really succeed. And how it's going to work in the market, and, and you know a lot of times if you're doing something innovative, those types of things don't exist. It's it's really kind of the fuzzy front end. You're you're dealing with a progressively loading JPEG problem, right? And you kind of got to like say, you know, the picture's starting to resolve, and it kind of looks like this.
0: <laughs> I think the an interesting part to that is the especially in in the field of low code AI ML maybe automation workflow management. There are different uh, stakeholders and each of the stakeholders need to hear the story from their own way, like the business, like you said, maybe cares more about time efficiency or improved customer experience. Whereas the engineer cares more about like how they can Rebuild on a machine learning algorithm easier and without going through all the tests or retraining for hours, and then similarly for the end user, them experiencing a better product that actually works and fun- and, and functions. So I think in, in in communicating the low code, um, the entire AI ML field, there's very nuances and different value propositions to everyone and. And, and where where do you see, um, and then obviously this varies by audience, but like the people getting uh, challenged the most to adapt their own skill set, uh, because they also need to acquire a new skill set themselves, and also adapt to new way of doing the work. And, and, and I think we've seen that often that there are processes in large enterprises that they're bummed by for like 25, 30 years and somebody has been the, doing that. The government over. is
1: typically the worst at these things, right? They uh, they built a system like uh, 50 years ago and we're still using them. like uh, it's, um, you, you know, like uh, it, it's kind of an interesting question. And, and I think like uh, the pace of change is accelerating actually, like because technology is like gonna happen faster and faster. And, and we've we've clearly hit this interesting inflection point in ai and machine learning right now um and uh and the you know the way you used to do things is going to change uh like sort of for everybody in some capacity um you know and that that could be as as uh as basic as trying to learn about a topic using the internet uh, or as complex as like standing up an optimized workflow for your sales pipeline um and uh you know i, I think um I think a lot of people like uh get a little bit uncomfortable with change um you know uh, it, it's it's sort of a it's sort of a core reaction that that even I have like uh you know like ch- change can be uh you know the only constant is change but like change can be a little bit scary um but I found uh that that the uh, strategy of like leaning into like uncertainty and change is where you learn and grow the most as a person, uh regardless of if that's at work or at home or, or whatever it is, um, to be like uh really true and, and now I almost seek it out uh because um it's where you get like the most growth. And so uh you know everyone from an analyst who you know used to do uh sort of exploratory data analysis and, and graph like key trends and then try and like Show what's driving them to, uh, you know, a, a, a data pipelining engineer. Um, they're going to have new tools at their disposal uh, that are going to make them more effective and more efficient. Uh, and you know, I think I think one of the key skills to differentiate yourself is going to be a willingness to adopt early and to learn um, and to lean in uh, to these types of changes because. Um, if you wait around, eventually the change will get forced on you from competitive purposes, right? Like, uh, you know, like your if your company doesn't adopt machine learning and everyone else does, you're going to be operating at a massive disadvantage. Um, and sooner or later, you know, that company will go out of business and you ha- if you're working in that company you're going to have to get a job at a company that has adopted machine learning right um and mm-hmm. and that you know like uh that that's the adoption curve reality there's always a group of people like leaned in more on the front end of things uh and there's always a group of people who have been doing something the same way for a really long time and and don't want to change uh you know the, the late adopters or the late majority as they might be but uh um yeah. you know I, I think uh i think the pace of change is accelerating and the time you'll be able to like wait it out is getting shorter, um, you know? Like as, as a, so, so I think everyone's gotta like be flexible and, and lean in as much as they can.
0: I think there's the, during, during my interview with uh, Joy Mountfort, she mentioned that um, sometimes she sees some engineers focus on mastering the tools so for example, somebody is really great at Python, certain package or be really great at a certain vendor's product. Um, and if you are saying, if that vendor or if that product or if that programming language one day disappears, then you need to learn the next thing. So like the understanding the principles of how each work and give you the transferability of that knowledge. and. And then, and I would like to tie this to um, you guys. You guys released a new feature. Um, on the mm-hmm. um, I think uh, I think it's an integ- uh, a good generative tech uh, future uh, where you'll be able to come in and you have the data, and then you can type in and to tell the two. Instance, we we call the it to transform the data.
1: Chat Chat or, Data Prep.
0: Chat Data Prep. <laughs> <Yeah, laughs>
1: chat Data Prep. Um, I think yeah, that the, that's
0: a great use case. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a good example where. Um, you know, we well, what we do there, uh, for, you know, in, in case people aren't aware, um, because, because it's new, um, is we we take a natural language request, like, uh, and, and that could be anything like reformatting dates or like doing math or uh, calculating things. And, and we translate it using a large language model into uh, SQL to apply to your, your data set. Um, and then we show you a preview of the transform that would happen on the data. Uh, we actually subsequently take the query that we generate and feed that back into a large language model and ask it to verbosely describe what's going to happen because um you know one of the key things is putting the human in the loop of this like mm-hmm. process because um, it turns out, like, uh, while people might be pretty good at specifying exactly what they want with code, um, they're, they're, like, a little bit less good at specifying exactly what they want with natural language, um, you know, so so showing, like, the interpretation of the ask, like, helps them think through about the level of specificity that they need to have, um, or the corner cases, it, it, it's funny because it's like the classic Product manager engineering interaction right laid bare in a user interface. Uh, you know, like I ask for a feature, and the engineers come back and they're like, "You didn't think about these three corner cases. What do we do here?" And then yeah. I go, "Oh, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta specify what we do there." Um, same, same thing. Um, but, but yeah, like uh, you know, when, one of the interesting things about you know lower no code um, or using natural language to instruct a computer is these are all like just layers of abstraction to machine code, right? Like even, even like Python, uh, like compiles into machine code to run on the run on computer. So um, this is just another layer of abstraction and, and with it comes some complexity around specificity of uh, like event handling or, or edge case uh, concerns. Um, but also with it comes the ability for a lot more people to use a, a mechanism they already use every day you know language to uh start to instruct systems to do what they want. Um and, and I that'll be incredibly powerful, right? That that'll change like everything because more people can do it with less barrier to entry. Um you know it it just uh it saves saves like massive amounts of time and effort for the people doing it the old way. Um but a bunch of new people who couldn't figure out how to do some I mean I can't tell you even even myself sometimes in Excel I, I find myself googling how to do like v lookups and and you know like how to make a v lookup properly yeah. work it's like it gets fairly painful sometimes like to be honest uh and you know it's just a lot easier to just ask for it you know
0: yeah and i think like um, even things like stack overflow for i think a lot, a lot, a lot of the q and a's happen where able to take it and and I think then like the learning curve of uh, and I'll pick this randomly but like somebody who's extremely proficient in sql right like or extremely proficient in the subcategories of sql then need to develop an understanding of how to communicate with the interface that is in- inputting the natural language maybe in this case chatbot um to in a, such a right way, so that it can generate the SQL uh, query at the back. Um, so it's a
1: and you know we'll surface the actual generated query if you understand it, right? Like uh, and and I think I think that's important for uh, traceability or, or like uh, in in some cases like confirmation that the that the commands are executed correctly. And um, you know in in these types of these types of interfaces are new and. You know, people have had a lot of time to uh, develop a level of comfort with how uh, you know software compiles into machine code. Um, we're we're taking natural language and compiling it into software instructions, which are you know subsequently compiled into machine code. Uh, and I think it'll take a little bit of time to get those interfaces right. Um, and and that's why we built in some feedback loops. Uh, but but um, but they're going to get there. Like just. It's just faster, right? Um, and and so like uh, it's faster and easier. Faster and easier always wins. It's like time time to result. Uh, at Sonos, we called it time to music. How long it took from when you hit play till sound was coming out of the speaker. Um, you know, and yeah, we we did we did a ton of crazy stuff to make that incredibly fast. You know, like uh, we'd pre-buffer the song in memory that was queued up to play. Start playing the song out of the memory buffer. And then transition it to the live stream from Spotify like mid playback, so that you could get instant play response when you hit the play button. You know, like uh, like like it's just faster and easier. But you, but you know the, the the team building the solution has to put a lot of thought into how to make that work. Yeah. We're still trying to make the uh, interface faster. I mean, it's pretty fast, uh, but but I want it to be faster. I, I want like a almost instantaneous like uh, results um, when you ask for a transformation.
0: And that, that's the I think most impressive part because the like the user thinks that oh there's this field box where I can come in and input anything that I like, but in the background there's like um, so much work that goes into that building those natural models, the ML models, the the response time to bring the result back to you into in live and, and make it making sure that the tokens and the language are enough as well so the um database doesn't crash. So like t- tying that to the little bit of the um, like what is going on with the generative tech and open ai I think it's it's a topic that has been that became a popular just recently but it's been on the works for 6 7 years for, for now um and i, I think um from, from what i've seen i think it's going to start to get integrated a lot to uh companies or maybe there are going to be new companies emerge like Jasper.ai, Spoply.ai is, is on um, helping people generate content. But how, how do you see uh, from from both like Akio perspective and your personal perspective, um, being part of 3D printing company, being part of Sonos and Sony, focused on music and TVs? Uh, I think, what do you think,
1: yeah, I, I think, um, so for, first of all, like, uh, I think large language models will get commoditized like faster than we think. Um, and, and will be used uh, basically everywhere. Like, uh, you know, like, like, um, check data prep for us is really the first of like many different user experiences or features that we're going to build that leverage like the possibility of using language to accomplish a task. Um, and, and I think, uh, the norm in three to five years will be any feature you build. Um, takes this into consideration, and and you know maybe eventually we'll get to like direct brain to instruction interface, and you can just think about what you want without having to type it down. Um, but but for now, like um you know the the ability to make uh to to give people more flexibility and and what they want to accomplish, uh, and to make it simpler and easier to understand, like like if you think about what happened with GPT three. It didn't really break into the mainstream until chat came out, right? Where you could like interact with it in a manner that you kind of expect to interact with things and it carried a bit of context behind it. Um and and just with that little simple change, uh suddenly like everyone gets it and can use it. Um, you know, I, I think interface design, considered interface design. Uh, is going to be like a, a really powerful differentiator uh, as, as companies start to adopt these technologies um, in, in everything they do, um, and uh, and and it's going to be wild. Like the different places you're going to see it pop up and get used, and and yeah, I mean, um, and and companies are, are getting built entirely on top of these these stacks. Um, you know, I don't know how. Uh, long or how differentiated some of these things will be because they're like almost like tech demos that that will get built into other platforms in some cases. Uh, but um you know but but you're gonna see it go everywhere is, is the bottom line. Um, and and that, you know that's everything from like education uh, all the way to like how we work. And uh, it's it's one of those changes that's so impactful. it's really hard to say um, where it's going to end.
0: It's. Just, I think it's one of those things that the way people react, the way the way people adopt it and use it is going to define how it's going to be like. And I think it's also lead to um, like the ethics discussion uh, as well. Like yeah. How, yeah. How do we regulate around it? What how do we define? What is possible? What is not? Um, it's very interesting. And, then, and there was that discussion about. Um, and I, and I I've seen a few products out there as well that allows um allows um teachers to create exams, but it also allows students to write exams <laughs> so it's uh it it's an interesting area um yeah
1: i mean if you're a professor today uh you're you're rethinking your approach to essays right um because uh, how do you how do you know if it was uh, actually written by the student or not uh and and i, I think it's probably uh if if the student puts very little effort into using a, a language generator to do it, then you could probably tell. But um, you know, I think there's probably a lot of students who put a little bit more effort into it, which is still a lot less effort than writing an essay. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and it turns out pretty good.
0: Yeah, I and mean, that, that's it, we we're almost at time. Uh, so I, I want to thank you once again for joining uh, the session. Well, I really enjoyed me. our conversation.
1: It's uh, been great.